You're listening to the Philip Robertson Property Podcast. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, episode 28. Can you believe it? My goodness gracious me, where has this year gone? This is the final episode of the Philip Robertson Property Podcast for 2020. I'm always excited and yes, I'm equally excited about my guest today. I will not spoil it. So let's dive straight into it. So my guest started in real estate back in 1996 in Brisbane in Queensland. He started out in a sales role in quote unquote, the heady days of when you really had to work. What do I mean by that? Well, it was actually back then, it was a case of prospect or starve, as in those days, there were no retainers, there were no advances against future earnings. It was purely genuine commission-only sales. So in this, uh, well, let's call it the sink or swim environment, my guest did, well, he just did that. He paddled like crazy and quite incredibly, I will say, within some six months, was generating a six-figure income. And mind you, this was back then still two years before the boom. Now, let's fast forward a little. In 2006, my guest completed an MBA with a focus on property valuations, valuing everything from commercial, industrial, and high-end residential property. Then he branched out into the specialised area of insurance. And fast forward to today, now operates an incredible business, a property valuation firm that spreads the breadth and width of Australia and the US of A. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Brenton Salmon. G'day, Brenton. Good morning. How are we? Well, mate, how could you not be good, as we were just remarking... How beautiful it is this weather. What a great day, isn't it? It's an absolute peach, as I'd say. And uh, it's exciting to... uh, You and I have been talking about getting together for how many months? Seriously, how hard is it to get diaries to line up? It feels like about six months we've been talking about this. Yes, I know. Talking about it, talking about it, and now we actually are going to talk about it. Sounds good. Mate, tell us, what was it back like in 1996 as what I would say a green Mm. real estate agent having to find your own way? without any sort of fallback as a financial cushion? Very green. Um, did sales in Victoria and my uh, my wonderful uh, uncle um, asked me to come up and join him up in real estate. He'd been very successful in real estate and was opening up a new office. Come on up, teach you the ropes. And I thought, fantastic, except there's a catch. You're not getting paid anything. You only get paid on what you sell. Payment on success. That's it. So a real commission only, no retainers, um, no advancements, nothing. So we had to make sure we had money in the bank so that I could live for six months. How old were you back then when you plunged into this world? Oh, I don't know. Um, I've got to do some sums in my head now. (laughs) I think I was in my uh, 20s. Okay. Just married three years. Okay. Moved up to Queensland by myself without my wife yep. for that six to seven month period just to make sure that it was going to work because, you know, there's no point moving moving up and then realising I'm not making a quid and coming back. So, yeah, went up there by myself and just worked, you know, nose down, bum up and off we went. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, you know, back then, yeah, if you didn't uh, prospect, you died. Yep. You, you starved to death. Yeah. You... Uh, You've got to do all the hard yards and especially me not knowing anyone in Queensland, coming from Victoria, 
not knowing anyone. It was a matter of the old school door knocking, talking to people when people were... And back then, internet wasn't huge. So you actually got people to walk around and look at the windows and then you shot out as soon as you could and go to speak to them and ask what they wanted. The art of, the art of it hasn't changed. People like to reinvent the wheel, but it's still the same. You get out there, you listen to what the client wants and you find what the client wants. Don't go show them something that they're not interested in. It's out of their range because they're not going to purchase and they're going to go elsewhere. So if you can service them correctly, they'll be a client for life. I still have clients today, even though I'm not selling, that ring me up and ask me information about properties that they're buying in Queensland. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think it comes back to it's still a people business. No matter what technology we've got, it's still about people and conversations. You'd be surprised how many service industries forget the service part of it. Yep. You know, it's a, it is a people person, it's a service industry and it's all about relationship building. Absolutely. Yep. And I, you're, you're incredibly right there. And sometimes I, I used to love people like Zig Ziglar, for example, yep. who would say that you've got to remember that these are the people that are putting the food on your family's table. So you've got to absolutely love and listen and serve. And, and I remember one of the things Zig Ziglar said is you can have everything in life you want as long as you help enough other people get what they want first. Yeah, And those, definitely. And I think it makes an absolute lot of sense. So I guess in a very, very flat market, which is when you moved up on your own, as you say, and had a, a wife back home and you weren't prepared to – and I could, that makes a lot of sense, not lifting up – stumps and, and, and relocating, you were still some two years away from the property boom. So what were some of your strategies in terms of generating? You said that when people would come past, they'd come past the window, you'd, you'd go out and you'd start to have a conversation. Yeah. It was good old-fashioned door knocking. Well, yeah, door knocking and, and as I said, it's relationship building. So I would listen to the client but I would build a relationship with them where I wasn't thinking of that sale. I was thinking of three, four, five, six hours down the track and my philosophy has always been if you do a good job by someone, they will reward you by recommending you to someone else. And my business not only became repeat business but it became referred business, best business to get because they already feel as if they know you because you've done good by somebody else. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the, the best form of advertising. Mm. If you do an outstanding job in servicing your client, they will furnish you with warm doorsteps and introductions. And I do that today. Even yep. in my business today, I still do that. It's all about the relationships. I have relationships that have been going for 15 years and that's led to other business. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's you, – you can't go wrong no. when you service people really, really well. I guess that's probably a bit of a segue, Brenton, into what advice you'd give someone if they were about to embark, you know, in the career of getting into real estate today. How would they – what advice would you give them about creating a good business? And you've really answered a lot of that in just yeah. – Yeah, well, don't reinvent the wheel. Um, yep. You're going to have someone who's going to be your mentor wherever you get into real estate. Yep. And – they themselves shouldn't be trying to reinvent. They will tell you to do steps. Most people try to find a shortcut. There's no shortcut. You do the hard yards now and it will reward you in the end. And I think that um, just listening to people, old-fashioned listening, sends, seems to work. Um, 
You know, if you're listening to your clients or your potential clients, you're always going, you can't go wrong because they're telling you what they want. You're not telling them what would be good for them. So you cannot go wrong. My, my philosophy has always been you can't sell someone a house to put to the point where if, you, if they walk into a home and they start moving themselves in mentally, you can't talk them out of it either. But if you bring them into something that they don't like, they're not going to buy it no matter what you say. You can talk about putting furniture here and there, but if they can't see themselves in the home, it doesn't matter what you say. So you're a facilitator. You're just listening and guiding. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it. And I think too often when people are having a conversation, they're too busy actually, they're, they're nodding, they're pretending to listen, but they're actually already thinking, now how am I going to respond? What am I going to say? That's right. That's the, right. The old, and one of the things that I was taught was the art of the pregnant pause. So when that person's finished their sentence, don't jump straight back in, actually look like and really think, okay, like you're you're taking on board the value in what they you're, – you're validating what it is that they're sharing with you. And obviously one of your little secrets that I don't want to let everyone know, but the first person to talk loses in that pregnant pause. Yeah. Well, and, and that's something <laughs> – Especially in that, negotiations. Absolutely. And that was certainly something that I was also taught uh, when I was uh, – going through my paces in, in various sales roles over the years and still I apply the same thing today. Exactly. A- absolutely. So then – now, you came back to Melbourne uh, around 2000, was yeah, it? Yeah, around okay. 2000. Now, what brought you back home? Family. Um, myself and my wife, very successful up in Brisbane and um, we unfortunately lost a child uh, during, uh, during birth and um, – we struggled for a while and she said to me, I can't do this anymore. I said, okay. So I went in the next day and t- said to everyone, I'm leaving the business. Um, and everyone fell over <laughs> because, you know, we were doing very, very well. Um, properties were going. We were, I was an auctioneer at the time as well. So, we, you know, we were, se- we were selling stuff at auction. And back in those days, we were doing uh, in-house auctions. So we'd do 20 or 30 auctions at a go. Wow. And just bang them out one after the other. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so decided to come back. And when I let uh, – and I was at Ray White at the time. I let them know I was coming back. They, uh, they then basically started putting me into uh, contact with the Ray White officers back in Melbourne. Fantastic. And uh, I became a troubleshooter. So you were there to put out fires and turn businesses around? Turn businesses around, help yep. them uh, turn businesses around and uh, be some mentors for some other salespeople. Yep. Um, and I didn't mind that. Pay structure was completely different but that was fine. Um, but, yeah, I didn't mind that. It was uh, it was intriguing. I went to Blackburn. I went to Mount Waverley um, and uh, had had some good times, had some good times but different, different times because everything was back on retainer and... Yep. So it was interesting. Yeah, and, and maybe it was also a time when you were still doing going through the grieving as well yeah. of losing a child that perhaps commission only may not have been the right thing at that time. Perhaps it might have been another stress. Well, exactly. And, you know, when I left uh, Queensland, we were obviously – I was in a more senior position of a, a part owner, so I was getting a lot more um, yep. flow of cash anyway. But, yep. um yeah, no, look, it was probably a good thing. Uh, 
more importantly, it was good for my wife because she was back with family and that was the number one reason. 100%. Yeah. Darn good reason if you ask me. Yes, yes. So I guess then how long were you with Ray White for? You came back around 2000. How long did you stick out with them? I uh, stuck it out with them for about four years, different offices for about four years and then decided to have a break for a while. Okay, what'd you do? Absolutely nothing. Oh, I like that. Yes. Sometimes it's so good to step away, isn't it? Recharge, realign. And if financially you can do that, I think it's a really healthy thing to do. Well, yeah, exactly right. And we, we could do that. My wife was still a nurse. Yep. Um, but it was just time to just, yeah, just take take note and be a bit of a uh, Mr Mum. And, uh, yeah, and so I did that and then decided I need to get back into the workforce. Was it because you were missing it or you just thought, yeah, I wasn't necessarily a financial decision, I just needed to do something? Funny it, funny thing, and yep. I talked to this quite a few people, I stopped working, I felt myself getting stupid. <laughs> I wasn't using my brain and I felt okay. like I was getting dumb. Yep. I felt like I wasn't uh, accessing, accessing my full potential and I, I wasn't feeling satisfied during the day. So I thought, okay, let's get back to work, let's do some stuff. Didn't want to get back into real estate because real estate was six days a week, and as a salesperson, my fault. I I I bent over backwards to help my clients, but sometimes you'd get that client where it didn't matter what you did, it wasn't good enough, and so I thought I don't want that anymore, and I had an interest in valuations, so I decided to do a, a bachelor of science slash property. And that's that's the batch that's that's the degree you do for property valuations, and then went on and did my masters in business. Well, you know what? You've just stole my thunder because that was actually a question I was going to ask you because I know offline we had talked about that you had done an MBA, a Bachelor of Science, and of course my first brain's thinking, well, what what area of science, and why would they call it a Bachelor of Science? <laughs> it's a bit of a joke. You know, valuation, there is science and there is art. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so... Just like mortgage broker. <laughs> I always said it was an art and a science. Exactly right. So um, I don't. I have no idea, to yeah. be perfectly honest, but yep. that's what it was. It was a Bachelor of Science slash property. Yep. And then that led on to the MBA. Okay. And that was at RMIT? RMIT. Yeah. And I had a lot of credits, obviously, because I was a real estate agent. Um, I... I'd, um, done some other uh, learnings. So yep. I had some uh, legal background behind me as well. Some, okay. And so uh, from that it led into the Bachelor of Science and the valuations, which is the area I wanted to get into. One, it was Monday to Friday. and Tick. Yep, tick. And two, there was no commission. Tick. Tick, yep. And, um, yeah, I thought it was great. The hardest thing was working and studying. That's not an easy thing. I With did teenage kids. Yeah, or I mean, young I, kids. I remember I was at Swinburne doing psychology at night and sales during the day. Yeah. And it's not always an easy thing to get to those lectures when you're tired. And it wasn't just the lectures, as you know, and shoots. Yes. It was the assignments. Exactly right. For sure. So, okay. Well, now the NBA. Yep. Walk us through that. So that Master of Business Administration. That's right. Yep. Yep. So, um, was always into sales after I finished my earlier on life as a uh, greenskeeper at a golf course. And then I thought, well, 
it can only be of benefit to me to have it and it was only an extra year. Yep. So I thought, what the heck, let's go for it. And, uh, you know, I've only got one year to go and it was surprising how many of my college um, classmates fell away with six months to go. And I found that it was a, um, a common thing that people who were doing degrees in their last year would just stop. It had been too much or it yep. was enough. Yep. I couldn't believe that. You put all that effort in. Mm. And I felt drained but I thought I've got six months. Yep. Just power through. That's it. And that was the Stay the idea. course. Yeah, exactly right. And um, so, yeah, so got the degree and it's a nice little thing to have on the uh, on the wall, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> feels, a, feels a spot on the wall. It certainly so does. So to speak. Now, brilliant. So you're studying. How did you go about generating an income to, uh, you know? So prior to getting into the course, I picked up a job as an assistant valuer at uh, Aon, which is an insurance company. Know them very well. As I do. PI cover for me. Me as well. <laughs> and um, they, uh, so they put me on as an assistant valuer and then I started to do the course. So we did a lot of insurance valuations, but we also did a lot of uh, financial uh, valuations as well, financial reporting valuations. So that was a great asset for me. So I was working during the day, shot off to uh, uni at night. Tell us about financial reporting vows. Um, okay, so financial reporting vows are completely different to market valuation. So people get, there's, there's so many different valuations, but a market valuation is what's going to sell on an open market. Um, and obviously your financial is for spreadsheeting. So for the companies, how much is the property worth now? Not as in um, market value. So what, the, and a lot of those, especially with the specialised properties, it would be a depreciated replacement value that would give you your financial. Or you would look at your income that it generates. So if a property generated income, you would use that with the spreadsheet and that would give you your financial valuation because it would tell you what that property is worth to the business. So it could be more or it could be less than a market value. Can you give us an example of the type of place or, or commercial uh, space, let's say, that you would use a financial valuation for? A hotel, okay. a pub, yep. Makes hotel or a yep. pub, um, yep. a nursing home. Yep. Uh, per bed and uh, how much that bed generates in yep. income. Yep. Um, a, an office building that will generate uh, rents yep. and how much rent each floor will, will generate for you. And on the smaller scale, mum and dad super, if they have residential properties that generate income, you can do it for that as well for financial. Just to, I've got a COVID question, if I may, and sure. this is not one that we talked about, but uh, have you done any of those fin financial financial vows since COVID? I'm wondering because the theory that I've got is that I think commercial office space, the uh, price per square metre in, in rent would be dropping at the moment. I haven't done any, but I can tell you that if I owned commercial property, I'd be concerned yeah. for the future because I think that we've all now realised that we can do our job at home. Yep. And our bosses have realised that we can do our job at home and we don't need the same floor space. I know large companies that have multiple floors that one will not release or renew their lease or two are trying to sublease out 
because they don't need as much floor, floor space anymore. Yeah, I'm hearing lots of that anecdotal evidence. Terry Ryder, who you know, yep. is uh, my mentor and is often a guest on our show. Uh, he and I have spoken about that certainly on the show and offline. Uh, I, and in fact, I wrote an article for Canstar, which was published on the 30th of November, talking about the tree change. And, and that's one of the things I've been uh, very much across, which is that people and companies are realising, yeah, we don't need this much space. We can do our job equally well, if not better, remotely. Yep. Yeah, and I, I absolutely agree. I think there's, we're in for maybe a, a rocky time in the commercial. And so, having said that, I think industrial is going to boom because people are going to start selling things online and they're going to need space to store everything. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it interesting how the world changes? I'm, it reminds me of the days of VHS and going to Blockbuster Video. You remember right. those? Yes, I do. The video those. stores, gone. Gone. Gone ski. Kodak camera. Well, yeah. But gone. video stores to DVD. Yeah. And DVD players. And now everything's on a USB stick or streamed. Or you go to it's Netflix exactly. or, or Stan or, you know, yep. or, or whatever or Binge. Yeah, exactly. The, but this is, I think, it leads into it's a great segue that you, in, in property as well, you've got to be flexible. Mm. You've got to really look ahead and understand what the, what the trends are. Yep, and definitely. And trends are definitely changing. Now, in 2017, so you went out on your own? So after being headhunted from, for other companies, yep. I went and worked for them, I thought I'm bringing all my clients to them and getting paid a wage to bring all this money over to generate income for them. And I thought, I can do this myself. But there's always that hesitation like anything. It's a big step to make. You go from a regular wage and I was paid very, very well, I must say, heading up um, Australasian insurance valuation businesses in big companies and going from that to going out into my own was quite a, a risk. It's a leap. Yeah, jump off the cliff sort yeah. of. Yeah. And uh, so we did it and um, when I say we, myself and my wife, um, and relied on all my relationships and it says a lot that they all came with me. Um, so back to the heady days of real estate, relationship building, and I targeted my my audience that I needed to target that was going to generate income for myself and word of mouth got around and the rest is, they say, is history. rest is very good history from what I can see in our conversations. Very good. Now, one of the things that you've learned about when it comes to vowels or valuations for people's properties is that you feel that there is a very high percentage of people that are underinsured. What sort of percentage would you, would you if you had to... Commercially, yep. between 50 and 75%. Are underinsured. Are underinsured. So corporate commercial, underinsured. And I reckon that's higher. Well, I believe it's a lot higher for mums and dads. And why? Why is that? We don't think about uh, the cost of materials. So if a lot of the time we'll buy something, and let's say we buy something for, for ease, $500,000. Yep. So we'll insure it for $500,000. And then we may CPI it. But what we don't take into account, labour, materials that all go up higher than CPI. Um, mums and dads and those small investors, when they insure a property, 
They don't think about, let's, let's talk a house, for instance, a home. But they don't talk, they don't talk about um, the driveways, the landscaping, the uh, other structures, the pergolas. So they'll insure the home and if there's something that happens and the home burns down or gets destroyed, yeah, you might be able to rebuild that. But then you've just are on a, a block of dirt because you haven't allowed for driveways, fencing, landscaping, pergolas, sheds and so on and so forth. So they're underinsured. And for that reason alone, but then obviously if they're not increasing their valuations to – and we don't like to do it. It's not sexy. It doesn't look good. You know, you get an insurance valuation and all that means is if it goes up, your premiums go up. And we don't like to pay for money that may or may not happen. Yep. But it's it can be – it's a tax deduction if it's an investment property. So if it's an investment property, it's a tax deduction because you're – you're paying for something for your own building. And it should be done regularly. As in updated your val? Every three years. Okay. If you had to have a guess, how as a percentage are we talking, most people would be underinsured by what, 10%, 20%? It varies. It depends how many people, how long ago they've done it. Yeah. Some, some people, and if you think about it, when you go and get home insurance or you ring up about home insurance, they ask you what it's worth or what do you want to insure it for? And so we straight away always think, well, it's how much is this going to cost me? Let's pull it back because it's never going to happen to me. You know the old saying that this will never happen to me and then when it does, that's when we are crying poor because we haven't got a home that's insured properly. Yep. And if you're a, an investor that has multiple properties and you're underinsured and you get an assessor to come out, and if you're underinsured on that property, they may say to you, well, this is now a co-insurance. And therefore, you've let's say once again for figures, you've insured a home for $100,000 and you get $50,000 of damage. And you think, no problems at all. And they come out and say, well, this home should have been insured for $200,000. So you've underinsured it by 50%. So therefore, the claim of 50000 We'll give you 25 and you'll have to come up with the other 25. Wow. And then if you have multiple properties, those are all void. So your whole – you've got to go back and get everything revalued because that whole policy can be can be void. Wow. And and the, the, talk about the fine print. This is the value of having great guests like you, Brendan, to educate us because i got to tell you, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, folks, listening – Every three years? Three insure. years. Just just for peace of mind. Every yep. three years. Yep. For an insurance valuation. And unfortunately, stuff does happen. As we know. I mean, the fires that wreaked havoc throughout the whole of Australia and there were so many people that one were either underinsured or weren't insured at all. Yep. Yep. No, really, really great advice. Now, I'm going to throw one at you. So let's just say, and it's a question I was often asked when I was a mortgage broker. So I've got a client, they've just bought a property and let's say it's a 60-day settlement. At what point would you recommend them starting their value, sorry, getting their uh, insurance in place? Uh, as soon as the contract becomes unconditional. And as a real estate agent, I would instruct my clients as that as well, the purchasers, because you need to cover and, and obviously insure your asset. It's your asset in time 
But now that it's unconditional, you want to make sure that if something does happen, that the owner or the vendor has not um, ceased their insurance because they can, because they don't no longer own it. It's unconditional contract. So you need to insure once it becomes unconditional, put out the insurance on it straight away. Yep. And obviously the expense is that I would always encourage you to get an insurance valuation done so that you're not insuring it for your purchase price. Because a purchase price can sometimes not match your rebuild price. Once again, probably leaving you short. Short. Sometimes, um, well, yeah, short. I've, I've just, I was just thinking when I had that pause, I completed an industrial valuation for someone and to replace the property was $1.4 million. And their first question to me was, why would I replace it when I can buy another one for $500,000? And my response was, you can, but not where you are right now. And if you've been there and you've established that property and you've established your business, you want to stay where you are. Mm -hmm. um, and if something happens, you need to be covered. If you underinsure a home or a property, you won't get all your money back. So you're going to be out of pocket in the end. And it's all about people asking those questions because they're worried about the premiums that they have to pay. But, you know, as I said, insurance isn't sexy, but it's a necessity. Yep, 100% agree with that. Now, you assisted me, for example, when I bought a property in Shepparton. And do you recall you encouraged me at the time to do a pre purchase valuation. So I called up David McKenzie at Opteon. Yes. And uh, I got a proper val, not a drive-by, not an estimate, but I paid for a full valuation. So I guess, tell us about pre-purchase valuations. Do you typically recommend them? I would always recommend uh, a pre-purchase. And especially if you're looking like you were as an investment property, because it's a deduction that you can use. But you need peace of mind that you're jumping into something that you think is the right thing. So an independent person coming in and telling you it's worth X amount is peace of mind. So you need to know, you don't need to know that you've absolutely stolen a property. What you need to know is that you've bought well. Exactly. And in fact, uh, the valuation came in $3,000 above what I had in fact paid. And for me, you're absolutely right. That gave me peace of mind, particularly because it's not an inflated figure. It's based on the market. Uh, I, I felt really, really comfortable. So that was a really, really good piece of advice. And uh, I listened to what you had to say. Very good. And look, and the bottom line is that um, you can listen to an agent as much as you like, and you may trust that agent, but He's in the end, he's working for the vendor. So in working for the vendor, he just wants that sale. So you need your, you need to do your own background and your own research and your own due diligence. I think that's a great piece of advice. And in fact, it's something that Terry Ryder said to me, always ask this question. Remember, who is paying the person selling you the property? They're going to tell you it's the absolute bee's knees, but they're never going to tell you what's wrong with the property. That's wrong. So I think it's a really great piece of advice. What about corporates? So have you had examples where they've been underinsured and how, and assuming that they have, how have you helped them overcome this? Because nobody wants to spend more than they need to. No, they don't. And a lot of them don't feel as if they have an issue. Um, 
multinational company that we all know that I won't tell you about the name of um, was some um, 400 million underinsured. Now, that seems like a lot of money to you and I, but to them it wasn't a lot. But, um, and that was just because they CPI'd everything and they didn't look at the underlying um, costs involved in, in a new building. In a replacement cost. Yeah. and, and The actual real costs. The real costs. And yep. at, that goes on and on and on. I've done uh, education facilities that have been 30, 40 million underinsured and I've been hauled up in front of a board and questioned, why is this? And one of the board members was an accountant. And I just said, it's not that you did anything wrong and you weren't misleading. It's because they don't understand insurance valuations. There's a lot of valuers out there that will tell you that they do insurance valuations, but they don't specialise in insurance valuations. They'll just do a very quick uh, calculation. It doesn't take into account for everything. You want to be right. It's, it's, a, it's a cost, but it's a cost worth doing. Mm. It's like the old adage, if you're going to do anything, do it well, do it right. That's right. And on the other hand, I've done a hotel, a couple of hotels, where they've been underinsured, they've got the value, and then they've had to make that decision. So all I can do is give them paper and say this is what it's worth. In the end, they have to make the right decision that uh, they're going to live by. Yeah, definitely. Can you give our listeners today, Brenton, some insight into, let's say, the types of clients you've been working with? I've um, done a lot of resorts, um, hotels, casinos, um, fast food outlets, churches. Um, churches is quite interesting because... How do you go about valuing a church? I mean, seriously, is there any goodwill in a church these days? <laughs> no, no. Um, and... And the church insurance is quite interesting because it's not cookie cutter because you have heritage listed buildings and then you have modern um, industrial buildings. And so the old adage is brick by brick. You look at each uh, building as an independent building and if, you, if there's a heritage uh, component, you have to take that into account. So you'll get bluestone, sandstone, triple brick, uh, corrugated iron. Um, tilt slab concrete. It'll all differ, but it's great. I've um, I've done a national uh, a national portfolio of churches, and I've had every type and conceivable building shape and size. I would suggest that you wouldn't get bored. No, it's very different. It's not, and that was why I did what I did because we were. Um, I, I didn't want to just do houses, as they say. Homes, you can end up doing them in your sleep. Yep. Uh, this There's is a formula. Yep. <laughs> I, you know, I can go and do a 600-bed casino in Las Vegas and then come back and do a 25-bed um, a, a nursing home. Yep. And, and, you, and you do other things. You were saying resorts, uh, deep water moorings, marinas. Yes. How awful to have to go and hang around resorts yeah. and marinas. But, you know, someone's got to do it. Someone's got to... And my do wife, the tough things. my wife puts her hand up to say that she could be a really good assistant. I was just going to suggest, and I say to her, "Listen, Joe, you need to slow down, honey. This is all work. Yeah, this There's is no work. play involved. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You can carry my bags. Yes, exactly. So, wow. Yeah. So, it, and look, it is interesting. It's great. You know, you can go out and do a a, a wonderful resort with a marina and deep mooring, um, and then you can uh, shoot out and do a casino or a hospital 
or a high school, um, nursing home, retirement village, even mortuary. I'd be really interested right now, and again, I'm, I, because we're in this still COVID mentality, nursing home vows, yes. would they have been, uh, well, their goodwill, would they have dropped evaluation? I mean... No. No? No. That's no. interesting, particularly within, in our state here in Victoria. Certain nursing homes were really put in, in the spotlight, in the frame, with the questions being asked. Yep, yep, yep. no, no. Um, nursing homes are necessities, as retirement villages are, and or ageing in places, they now call it. A lot of places will now have a retirement village and a nursing home linked, and they call that ageing in place, where you'll go from one and then, and then over time you'd end up in the uh, nursing home. Yeah, so you go like from an independent living unit, let's call it, yep. into a, like a high dependency yes. at some point. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's like there's a transition. Yeah, exactly right. And and it's a necessity and there's that many – and we are an ageing uh, population. So there is um, an abundance of property but also um, there's a lot of people that are now looking at how they can look after their loved ones. Absolutely. I mean, my mum's 80 and I've we have these conversations regularly. She certainly reminds me that I'm not leaving here and you're going to pull me out in a box. And But I get it, you know, th these are we are an ageing population and we need to uh, really look after our, our elderly and, and think about these things. Now, you, you mentioned about casinos. Yes. And we talked about your businesses also operates in the US of A. So it does. Very different to do vowels in the US compared to Australia? Um, not necessarily. It's all about the same. It's because what I now do, because I specialise in the insurable value, it's it's a cost approach. So we look at how much things are costing. Um, it's on a bigger scale, most definitely. I, uh, I was involved in doing some fast food outlets here in Australia, Australia-wide, and then... I've just picked up that in America. And so 900 in Australia, 48,000 in America. Of this particular, yes. they've got 48,000 sites. Yep, 48,000 sites across the USA. So it's a lot larger. So, but it's about the same. I mean, they'll have, so what we do is we do a lot of sampling. So we'll do, they may have four different styles, so we'll value those styles in each state Yep. and then we'll sample that out. Right. So I'd, we're not going to go see 48,000 sites. No, you'd be, uh, you'd take busy. A few, you'd be very busy <laughs> for quite a few years, yes, very I would have so. thought. Very okay, so. so it's like you've modelled it yes. and then you go, right, we'll apply that to each of the, our sites within that state. That's exactly right. Yeah, so wow. So we'll know how many, let's say, type A, B, C yep. properties there are and then we'll go and value A, B and C and then extrapolate that across yeah. the whole network. Wow. Yeah. Now, can you give us any clues or any insights into some of the clients of note that you are allowed to share with us? Um, Molfa, inter Intercontinental Hotels. Yep. Is one. I've certainly stated a few of those so, in my time. Yes, as I have. Um in the, side, in the churches, there's been all different denominations. So there's been the Luther, the uh, Church of Christ, um, some Catholic churches. Um, there's been uh, 
fast food outlets. There's been quite a few different ones. Uh, KFC is one. Um, there's been some McDonald's. Um, and then uh, we've got self-funded super who have three or four different properties, five or six different properties where they require their insurance valuation and we'll do that portfolio for them. So we're not just linked to the large corporates. We'll do a lot of self-managed supers um, who, where they've got multiple properties and they need those valuations done. Predominantly, are they commercial properties held in the SMSFs? Uh, yeah, predominantly commercial. Yep. Um, some of them are residential, uh, but a lot of them are commercial. Yep. Now, I know you well enough, mate, that you get around Australia and you go out on your, your road trip. So you see a lot of the regional areas, particularly because you're valuing the churches. Yep. And you know my passion uh, at Philip Robertson Property is about regional property. We're all about affordable properties. What is your view? I mean, you're seeing it. You're at the coalface daily. What are you, what's your view on the regional property markets around Australia from an investment perspective? Okay, so I think the regionals, and it's more the when – I, when I say regionals, I'm looking at those little boom micro cities as they call them. Yep. So your Shepparton's, your Albury-Wodongas. Latrobe Valley. Ballarat, yep. Sale, yep. Um, Bendigo, Swan Hills, Mildura's, yep. Roma up in Queensland. Yep. Um, as long as I've got access to the larger cities, um, as long as there's facilities there that will generate um, good clients for you as a, as a landlord, I think they're amazing. They're affordable and the returns that you can get on them are phenomenal. Um, a lot of people are moving, and especially now with COVID, I talk to a lot of people that can now work from home or, and come into the city once or twice a week. Guess what? They're looking at Bendigo's, Ballarat's, Geelong, Sale. Shep. Um, Shep, but even, um, what was it, Achuka. And then I had someone who was talking about moving down to Lakes Entrance. It's a longer drive, but they don't have to come in one day a week. The rest of it, they're working from home. Yep. So th they, they worked out that that was better for them. They can purchase down there or rent down there for nothing compared to what they're doing here. So your buying power in regionals are fantastic. Having said that, I think that you have to do your homework. 100%. And I think if you've got someone there to do the hard work for you who knows the areas, I think you tap into that because we like to do things on our own but we can make mistakes. There are people out there that know what they're doing. There are people out there that um, are passionate, as you are, about regional centres and they know what's happening in those regional centres and they know the good buys. And they've got relationships with real estate agents where if something can come on the market, even before it's advertised, they're going to tell you about it if, if, if they're a client of yours. Yep, So 100%. And in yep. fact, I had one just this week. True story. I'd bought a house for a client for 290000 and Just stop there. 290000 Where I can know. you buy a house for 290000 You're preaching to the converted. <laughs> uh, but I bought this one for a client for two ninety, and wouldn't you believe it, the house next door came up and one of the agents who I caught up with up in Albury uh, last week, we had lunch, he's based in Wodonga, we had lunch together and he said, hey, Phil, I've got one for you. It's actually the house next door to the one that you bought. I'd bought it off him, this other one. Right. He said, oh... It's come on at two sixty nine. I said, 
what's wrong with it? He said, mate, it's, it's as good as that house that you bought off me, if not better. And I said, well, why are they selling? They actually want to move to the golf course. Now, in the end, one of my new clients didn't buy it, but it's already been sold for more than two sixty nine. Right. The point is, is it was about the relationship. I had the opportunity. We didn't end up buying it, but it was beautiful that he actually took the time to ring me and go, mate, I already had my property assessor go through the property. We could have bought it. We were first in the queue and we could have taken it off the market. But for that particular buyer, they were looking for something else. And yet that, you've got to learn to jump too. So Correct. You've got someone who's telling you something that this is a good buy. Your clients need to trust and say, well, I'm going to buy in that area Here's a deal. You need to go now because they're not going to last. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that ended up going for more. So it was probably 20 to, we'll call it 20 grand under market. I could have picked it up at the 269 if we had offered full tote, but it ended up going for more than that because it ended up going to the general market by then and people were going through the properties. They all got excited. Competition. Competition. Pushes prices up. You got it. So I guess here's the thing. We are just about done for 2020. So my question, I'll give you the opportunity for the final question of the year. Any final advice, Brendan, you would want to share with our listeners, our audience, who are what I quote unquote are serious about wanting to get 2021 off to a good start when it comes to investing? You haven't missed the boat. Don't listen to the hype in the media. There are still good buys out there. And once again, there are great opportunities. But do your homework or better yet, get someone like yourself involved that knows the areas and knows, has the relationships who can get you into those buys. So get into it and go because now is the great time to go. And still, because people are going to start moving out there and they're starting to build a lot of infrastructure in these micro cities now. There's going to be universities, there's going to be hospitals and these will generate your tenants. So um, if you're not moving out there yourself and you're looking for investments, get get a buyer's advocate organised and get out there and do it because you don't want to be going to all these different micro cities and doing all the hard yards when someone's already done it for you. Well, I think that's a really great way to uh, finish up this uh, 2020. Brendan, it's been an absolute pleasure, brother, to have you on the show and on the podcast. So, mate, wishing you uh, and Joe the very best and your family for a great Christmas. You too. And looking forward to catching up with you in 2021. We'll get you back on and we'll have another chat and we'll look at uh, how the markets uh, fared during the year. But I think that's a great uh, bit of advice, folks, because uh, as Brenton has said, Terry Ryder often has been telling me, Phil, this will be an infrastructure-led recovery. Federal and state governments, interest rates are so, so low, they are going to spend their way out. And guys and gals, regional Australia, seriously, we do our research. Now's the time to get your, your finance in place so that we can jump on those good opportunities. And in fact, Brenton, you gave a great little bit of advice there, which was when the right opportunity comes up, be prepared to move. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Friends, I've thoroughly enjoyed bringing the podcast to you for this year, episode 28. It's all about value, value, value. Uh, So thank you for your support. Please like, share the podcast and leave a comment. 
And my final word also is to, I mentioned to my buddy Stu, our sound engineer, he gets married tomorrow. So that was also the reason why today was going to be the final podcast for the year. Stu, wishing you the very best. Enjoy your break. You've been amazing to work with, as have all the team here at Marshall Street Studios. And finally, Brenton, I just forgot to say, a shout out to you. If any of our clients want a valuation, What's the best way to contact Brenton Salmon at BJS Valuations? Um, obviously on the mobile or get on the website, which is bjsvaluations.com.au um, or, uh, yeah, just contact me. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm everywhere. You're everywhere. Everywhere. Everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Okay, folks, have a wonderful Christmas. Please stay well. Please be safe. And remember to always ask people, hey, how's your day going out of 10? Love to all. Looking forward to 2021. We'll be uh, back in the chair and in the studio like we were today, ready to roll. Bye for now.